0: So tonight we're continuing on with um, part two of the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path being the way that we can bring the totality of our lives to the process of awakening, really the... um, aspects of life that the Buddha pointed to as being important, helpful, useful in freeing the mind and heart from all that constricts or binds it. We have a few new people, so just to review just what these eight limbs of the Eightfold Path are, the first being that of right view, uh, it's being the view that allows things to be seen as they are. Uh, it comes about through the understanding of cause and effect, uh, the laws of karma. It comes. It it becomes really, uh, you know, it's not an intellectual understanding, but is the intuitive understanding that will come, you know, when the mind and heart is completely free, there's our own realization of the Four Noble Truths. It's needed in the very beginning to begin this journey that, you know, we have to have a perspective and a sense of direction. And the second of the Eightfold Path, that being of right intention, right motivation, right thought, sometimes called uh, And this really, you know, helps us to bring a wholesome intention to waking up, freeing the mind. Excuse me. And I didn't go in last week in depth, (laughs) in in depth into that, and I will next week. Uh, Annie did speak. About no self this week. And so it really ties beautifully into this talk. Uh, Because, you know, the basic, there's a basic fundamental wrong view to which we keep viewing life that keeps compounding our suffering. And that is that there is this small, separate, unchanging self to whom this whole vast array of experiences belongs. And out of the identification with that, we just find that the perpetuation of suffering continues. And so um, I'll go into that more next week. And then last week I I spoke about right speech, right action, and right livelihood, and this being the foundation of sila, uh, ethical conduct and, you know, really being so important in our lives, both in the Buddha saying, illustrating through this, that w- w- how we live our lives, that we can live our lives, all of the things that we do in life can be done in a way that will slant the mind towards liberation. And that, you know, by taking care and what we do, what we say, uh, really nurturing that which is wholesome, that which leads to the alleviation of suffering, and letting go of that which is unwholesome, is going to be supportive, helpful. Uh, sila is really based in harmony. You know the, the, Sometimes we tend to hold um, ethical, when we think of ethical conduct, in a really tight, r- rigid way based on morality, but really he's saying, you know, that if you do these harmful things, if you don't take care, this will compound suffering. This will tighten that knot of self. This will cause harm to ourselves and others. And so, you know, the bright aspect of this ethical conduct is, you know, in one sense, it's said to be really the... The uh, when one is fully awakened, it's how one would naturally behave, you know. So it's really there can be a purity of heart and mind that is allowed to shine through when our actions are not contradictory to our deepest aspirations to awaken. And so there's just pointers given as to how we can bring speech to the path, how we can bring our sexual energy to the path, how we can bring the way we care for ourselves in this world to the path, you know the bring the precepts, you know, living by the precepts. And so tonight, I want to move into uh, the part of the path that is about cultivating the mind, really what, how it is we can pay attention, you know, whether we're sitting on the cushion, whether we're in the midst of a daily life, but how it is that we can cultivate this mind to allow this purity, this radiance of heart to shine through. How we can let go of that which hinder obstructs uh, really <laughs> um, really just you know covers over this innate purity of mind, and so this limb of the Eightfold path is. Often called the Samadhi limb uh, it 's made up of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is also called bhavana uh, it 's the real training of the mind you know because we have habits of identification you know with, uh, with all of these experiences where you know, when we identify, we become, we take on. You know we we solidify the sense of there being this solid i me mine, which you know when we really begin to look explore in the ways that Annie pointed to in her talk, you know that helps to unbind that helps to you know just to see that what we're really calling self is this conditioned. Experiences that are arising and passing away again, and that they're insubstantial in their nature. You know, there's nothing that we can hold on to in all of that and say, This is who I am. But without training the mind, we don't see that, it's not evident. The untrained mind tends to get us in a lot of trouble. I think we know that <laughs> probably um, you know we just we just see what happens when you know you just let the mind run it, it doesn 't take very long before you can feel like you are in the hell realms you know that that just tormented by this mind, you know that. It just runs all over the place, it creates all kinds of stories. Many times those stories have you know immense pain in them, whether they're stories about the past, the present, the future, um, that it's really painful. And we don't know what to believe. We get really confused. The, you know, the deluded mind, when we're aware... Of the deluded mind. It's immense suffering. It's like, wow, you know, no sense to be made of anything, nothing no sense of refuge, just this complete bewilderment. Really painful. Actually, the Buddha said of the untrained mind, he he said it was unwieldy. He said that he perceived there's nothing he perceived of other one thing other, not, he was not perceiving one thing other than that leads to such great harm and that the untrained mind entails such suffering. But the trained mind, he said, was wieldy and it led to great benefit and entails great happiness and so our practice is really you know learning to recognize the habits of mind that lead to confusion that lead to suffering and to really wake up into the way things are and to live in accordance with the way things are This training of the mind in Pali is called citta bhavana. And bhavana refers to, um, one literal kind of translation of it, is calling into existence or cultivating the training. And citta is of heart-mind. And why I wanted to just mention that is because I think when we hear effort, mindfulness, concentration, we think, oh, meditation. And meditation can be held in a limiting way where the cultivation of the mind, the training of the mind, is something that we can do throughout our whole lives. And so this is really not restricted to formal meditation practice. It may be through formal meditation practice that we gain some sense of really how to be with this unwieldy mind, how to apply um, energy in a way that we can really come to know the very nature of this mind, but that this is not something that's just limited to meditation. So, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. You know, all of these aspects of the Eightfold Path work together. And there's a simile in the commentaries that describes a little bit of how effort, mindfulness, and concentration work together there's uh said to be three boys who are walking along going to a park and they see this flowering tree and the flowers are on the top of the tree and they decide they'd like to pick them but you know it, they the flowers are beyond even the tallest boys reach so one of the boys bends over to offer his back for the tallest boy to stand upon. The tallest boy goes to stand on his back but then becomes a bit shaky. So the third boy offers his shoulder as support. And then this this tallest boy is then able to pick the flowers. So the tallest boy Uh, who picks the flowers, is likened to the aspect of concentration. What he's doing is unifying all of the energy and being able to do the task at hand. He relied upon, needed the support of the boy offering his back. uh, We're okay, thanks. Offering his back, and this is likened to right effort. And then the boy who offers his shoulder to stabilize the the tallest boy, this is said to be uh, mindfulness, which helps to stabilize the mind. We will find in our practice, as we practice, that these three right, effort, mindfulness, and concentration are. Often, so closely working together. At times it might, you know, it's not even, uh, we might not really be discriminating what each one's doing because they, they're, they're so closely working together. And really the stable mind needs all three. But to speak about each of these aspects because they do each have a different function. So right effort... Right effort, right energy. Uh, this is something that we really often struggle with in our practice. It can be a place of great suffering. Um, we work a lot with effort when you know we might be really sleepy, nodding, drifting, and just trying to find the energy to meet that experience we work a lot with effort when the mind is really restless when it's jumping about you know when it doesn't want to land on anything and just trying to find the effort or energy to connect with experience we find we're working with effort when there's a tendency to shy away from difficulties where we want to retract, pull back. We find that we're working with effort when we're just bringing forth whatever energy is needed to meet this moment, to meet this experience. Sometimes we feel like it might be effortless to... uh, bring in effort. There's just an ease in meeting experience. And sometimes it's a challenge and we feel like we fumble with, we just kind of don't know how to work, how to call forth effort. As a result, many times in our practice, we strain, we try to force we try to push, and we become exhausted. You know, this is really we start seeing. See, on retreat is a really good way to see whether the way that we're touching into effort, and this will change, you know, almost moment to moment, but whether it's really relaxed and easeful and sustainable, or whether it's exhausting, tiring. It really needs to be some come, come, become something that we do pay attention to when I was practicing at a monastery in Burma there was a sign on the wall that said we must make the greatest possible effort without forcing without creating tension you know for some of us this just seems like doesn't make sense because we relate to effort as forcing creating tension you know that sense of Got to, got to muster up that energy. And here's this sign, you know, that everyone was all around the monastery, it was, and it was such a good reminder that, uh, that, that effort is more about perseverance. It's more about a steadiness of mind and heart to meet experience. It's not about trying to get some particular experience. It's just what it takes to meet this moment. The teacher I was practicing with at that time was Sayadaw Utejaniya, And he has a great emphasis on relaxation. Know that as we sit... Walk whatever we're doing, to notice if we are creating this tension in order to meet experience, or can we just relax and be aware of whatever's present? I found that, you know, after many years of practice, to take this to heart really helped me to see subtle levels of striving, of forcing, of trying. And instead, to settle back, to relax, to let be. And this, there is the other side of this equation. We must make the greatest possible effort. And so it's not that we just relax into complacency and like, oh, whatever happens, you know, it's okay, it doesn't matter. You know, it's okay. That's not it but it's that just that continual looking to a willingness of heart to be present you no know, just whatever it takes just whatever effort it takes to meet this moment and there's such a great intimacy in looking at right effort Because we will find if the effort's too strong, what we end up seeing is our trying. And we will find that if there's just a laziness, a complacency, that we won't be aware. But just really in a very easeful way to see what effort does it take to know What's arising in this moment? If we're really, you know, coming, uh, waking up from sleep, it might take a, you know, <laughs> a kind of a calling upon, you know, our deepest aspiration inside the energy of that to really know experience. But in many, in many moments, you know, just sitting here right now, how much effort does it take to know that you are sitting? How much effort does it take to be hearing? How much effort does it take to know seeing? It can just be a very easeful remembrance. so it said autajaniya said of right effort right effort means perseverance a willingness it does not mean focusing hard controlling forcing or restricting oneself focusing hard arises from greed of the practice we probably haven't looked at it that way at times in our practice when you know we wanted to be with the breath with some form of concentration you know just wanting to stabilize attention and then we try to focus hard but it, you know it's fueled by that wanting this doesn't mean every time we return the attention to at one object one aspect of experience that it's filled with greed but just to notice is there a trying in there to focus hard and that is the extra that's not needed. Sayadaw Tejani also said, when you put too much effort to be mindful, you will spend your energy too quickly and therefore you will not be able to maintain mindfulness throughout the day. If you practice in a relaxed way, you will conserve energy and be able to practice for long periods of time. If you are a long-term meditator, you cannot afford to waste your energy. Meditation is a lifelong undertaking. It is a marathon, not a 100-meter dash. Many of us may have entered into meditation through, you know, a short retreat experience where there was this sense of get in, go for it, do it, come out of it. The energy we put in that kind of a retreat is not sustainable. You know, it tends to be very intense. But what we're really looking towards is a way of applying effort or energy that is sustainable that is easeful and that helps to strengthen mindfulness and concentration. I noticed in my own practice that, you know, many times when I just had this sense of wearing myself into the ground, really that sense of striving, pushing, uh, which, you know, at times is subtle. At times is really blatant and one can still miss seeing it. But at times, one just starts to feel as if one's practice is grating, you know? And it's like you're just almost slogging on. And often there was some, when I looked, there would be some form of should in the mind. How my practice should be, what should be happening. Some idea about practice that really wasn't based in seeing things as they are. That had, you know, it tended to have some agenda. it's helpful to look throughout the course of the day to notice if there is underlying tension in how we're practicing you now sometimes the body will reflect it you know there can be it, a leaning forward that's just visible in the body. And if we look in the mind, it might be that there's been a leaning into experience as if we'll just get a little bit more. You no, know, um... <sighs> to notice if there's just a the complacency, whether... There, there isn't any, you know, the, the, the attempts to be mindful, to recognize awareness are so, you know, random. And, you know, the, at those times we might really need to look and to inspire within ourselves. It, it, rather than thinking we should be mindful, it's helpful to get in touch with the urgency for practice. You know, that we don't know how long these conditions will be the way they are, where we have the opportunity to practice in this way with this, you know, having a healthy body or a relatively healthy body, um, having conditions that support. You know, so it's like that can help us to bring up more energy. Um, if we notice at the end of a day that we're really tired, exhausted. Sometimes there's cycles, and you know it, that can be quite. You know, some, somebody might find they have a lot of energy in the morning, and then you know later in the day that it starts to diminish. And that could be a natural cycle. You know, it could just indicate time for bed. But it also sometimes can indicate that we're practicing in a way that's creating stress, that's tiring, that's not sustainable. You know, I noticed on one retreat that I was working a lot with aversion. There was a lot of the seeing of aversion in the mind, which sometimes we can think of as being, you know, difficult, challenging. But you're just really resting in the seeing of it. And and being there with in an easeful way, even though the object of meditation, what was being seen was, you know, potentially challenging because the effort was easeful that the energy really sustained itself. And you know, at the end of the retreat, even though there had been a lot of time with aversion, there was still a sense of being deeply nourished. And we just find that that if there is an ease in how we practice, how we turn up for experience, This is sustainable and this is what we want to be looking towards. The Buddha spoke about four guidelines to what we can apply effort to. And these are uh, simple guidelines that I found very helpful to remember as a basis in my practice and in life. And Um, I'm only going to briefly mention them this evening because I'm really just kind of giving an overview of this and then tomorrow morning in the reflection I will explore them a little bit more. He talked about rife effort as being effort to prevent unwholesome states from arising. The effort needed to abandon unwholesome states that have all already arisen, the effort to cultivate wholesome states and to maintain already arisen wholesome states. And this really is looking, bringing effort to that which is wholesome, which is conducive to liberation, which is onward leading, and to really, you know, abandoning that which is unwholesome, which is unhelpful, and to really, but in both the um, prevention of unwholesome states arising and the cultivation of or the maintaining of wholesome states, we all find that this is really tied up in wise attention, in continuity of mindfulness. This is really what helps to prevent unwholesome states from arising and naturally brings forth the wholesome qualities in the mind. And so, um, you know, it's, in, a, in a simple way, it's just really paying attention to what leads to more suffering and what leads to the end of suffering and, and really bringing the effort in our lives to stay steady to that which brings about the end of suffering. So we can see right effort as how we can support Awakening in each moment, and conditions are always changing, so what that means will change moment to moment. it can't be habituated it's where, where we really have to have an intimacy with life to to really know where you know we have to dig deep and where you know there's just enough there's enough energy already present that a really light touch is needed. The next being that of right mindfulness. We're probably all quite familiar with mindfulness. Although, you know, for me... uh, mindfulness has a great beauty to it because it keeps being seen fresh and new Um, when we're really when it's really alive in our minds. You know, it's the simple clear illumination of this mind-body experience. It's free of concepts, stories, judgments, commentaries. Uh, One of my teachers refers to it as being free of the Neuronal gossip. Mm -hmm. It's a freshness of mind. You know, it's meeting this moment without all the overlays. These overlays that we so often get caught up in keep us on the level of concepts, beliefs, ideas and keep us from knowing the deepest truth. You know, sometimes mindfulness is referred to as a reflective awareness. It's the natural clarity of the mind. It's something again, that is so, in one way, so simple and is directly accessible, but the habituated mind just keeps complicating, making it more difficult. Um, but just the simple, clear recognition of what is, No, it's very much like you know stepping in front of a mirror, and the mirror simply reflects. It doesn't comment, judge, evaluate. You know the mirror doesn't say all those things that the thinking mind can often say, "Oh, you don't look very good, you're too fat, you're you know, you're ugly, you're whatever." You know it doesn't do that. it simply reflects. And there's a real purity to it, a simplicity. And it can be, it's, there's something that's so simple in it that we tend to think it has to be more complicated. And, you know, it isn't that mindfulness is the end of the path. That, but what happens is that moment of clear seeing a moment that's not bound in concepts, that's not confused, but just a moment of clarity. Information comes through. We have a mo- one moment of seeing, and another moment of seeing, and another moment of seeing. And that information is gathering into data, and out of that comes wisdom. Understanding a relaxing and knowing of experience, the natural clarity of mind being recognized. Being known. What is really difficult with mindfulness is the memory to remember, the memory to be mindful because of the habituated mind. And that's where, you know, we're continually finding ways to help us to see, to know, to be with experience. Looking during the course of a day, what can help us? You know, often one of the reasons I think sitting meditation is so effective is because we really establish it as a posture of mindfulness. Because we didn't grow, many of us didn't grow up in a culture where we sat cross-legged on the floor. So it's something, or you know, some of us sit in chairs. But we don't sit often in our lives and not do anything. So the very act of doing that reminds us that we're not sitting here to write a letter to somebody, to you know, uh, think about what we're going to do tomorrow. We rem- it helps us to remember that we're simply sitting here. To be present. So we begin to establish the posture as a reminder. Similarly, we do this in walking. And that's one of the benefits of you know just walking back and forth. You know, there's nothing magical in that. But what it reminds us is we're not going anywhere. There's so often we get pulled into where we're going. But it's just to be aware, step by step. Similarly, standing can be established as a posture where we, you know, pay attention as we stand, which is, again, funnily enough, not something we ordinarily do in our lives, that, um, you know, we don't just stand somewhere. So really, you know, I encourage you during the course of your time of formal practice here to practice with standing, because you know, then it can help you when you're standing in the checkout line you know, after the retreat. Any, you know, how many times do we queue up in our lives? And you know, that can just help us to remember we're not going anywhere, it's not just to get something done. This is to be aware what's happening now. Lying down. Mostly in our lives we lie down to sleep. We can also establish it as a posture. Certainly for myself, it's been really helpful. Sometimes in life we're sick, that we um, may not have the energy in the body to hold it up. But it doesn't mean we have to sleep. You know that we can really work with using it as a posture. You know, so I found like things like laying on my back with my knees up. So you know they start to sway as sleepiness comes in, or my arm up. Uh, You know, it just becomes when it starts to sway, reminds me to be present, to look. Learning to pay attention to transitions. You know, as we move from sitting to walking, just pause. You know, it's that pause that remembers, that isn't just pushing forward in life, toppling into the next activity. It's just wanting to pause to remember. Remember to be present, to connect. We can let any challenging mind states become mindfulness bells, to remember, just to be with, just to see, touch, taste, to know. You know any of the experiences we have through any sense door, these can all be objects of mindfulness. Mindfulness. paying attention to just ru- when we're rushing, you know, letting that remind us, where are we going? What we really want to do is just be present. When we become aware of the benefit of mindfulness, we really begin to see how it affects our lives. That really helps to build the momentum. You know, When we really taste of the coolness of mindfulness, how it offers refuge, how we aren't then, you know, in the throes identified with the experience. But there's that, you know, just that quality of the reflective mind, simply seeing, simply knowing. This helps us to have that deep commitment to the establishment of mindfulness. And then, you know, using... The Buddha talked about the four foundations of mindfulness, that we can be mindful of bodies, we can be mindful of the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral quality that's present in every experience. We can be mindful of the mind. We can be mindful of the different patterns in the mind. We can really use whatever arises in body and mind as a basis a foundation for mindfulness this mindfulness is really you know the master key through which we come to know the mind and through coming to know the mind we can come to understand to understand what leads to the end of suffering. And then this right concentration. This is a mind that is stable, that is unified, it's not fragmented. This has a great power. We're you know, we probably are aware of the mind that's diffused, um, you know, uh one of the things that I hear from many people and I have seen myself do, you know, and it just illustrates the diffused mind. Uh it's when we sit down at a computer, somebody sends us an email with a link. We click on the link. Before we know it, we're reading through that article, it's got another link. We've pressed that link, and then we end up on another link. And you know, an hour later we wake up and go, oh <laughs> This is how the mind can be when it's really diffused. And in order to awaken, it's like really needing to collect all of the energy of the mind, unify that energy. Concentration actually is a universal factor, meaning it's moment. It's present in each moment's experience. Without concentration, we wouldn't be able to cognize experience. You know, that we wouldn't be able to sit down and read a book. We wouldn't be able to have a conversation with somebody. Uh, That it's really a necessary ingredient to have continuity. And, uh, you know, concentration can be very strong in many aspects of what we do in our lives, that you know, artists often talk about getting in the flow, or athletes, you know, that there's really a, a flow that's entered to. And this is, you know, the, where the mind is really unified. It doesn't mean that wisdom's naturally present, but the, that the, all of the energy of the mind is collected and sustained upon some aspect of experience. we 're really interested in what 's called right concentration, and this is a concentration that 's not rooted in greed, hatred, and delusion that has a wholesome aspect towards it and you know even in our practice many times right concentration um, we may have slipped into wrong concentration, where you know the motivation becomes that of greed, that of wanting. Uh, you know, we could be doing metta practice and really doing metta practice not to open our hearts to all beings, but really to because we want to feel better. That it's referring back to ourselves, or. Um, we're doing you know we're connecting with the breath so that we'll have some beautiful pleasant experience now that there's some form of grasping in it concentration was a prevalent form of practice at the, in, during the time of the Buddha you know, before he became fully awakened it was very prevalent in the society where um, there was practices that were done where the mind would become deeply absorbed in the object of meditation would be very unified and out of that the hindrances would abate. So temporarily there would be no greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. And the Buddha did these practices, or before he was a Buddha, he did these practices, but he really realized this was conditioned. And so, you know, he went further. He used this basis of concentration as a platform to leading to insight, But he, in order to do so, needing to let go of the degree of concentration that he had from um, that level of absorption, needing to relinquish that in order to see things as they are, and so then you know this moves into insight or vipassana meditation, where we develop a concentration that comes from sustaining mindfulness that comes through a continuity of mindfulness where the mind is continually recognizing what's being known the those the objects the experiences are continually changing but there is the recognition of that changing flow of experience. And that leads to, uh, you know, a really stable form of awareness that brings about wisdom. In the different traditions in Buddhism, you know, each school will give different emphasis to how much concentration we really need for there to be liberating insight. Nobody disputes, I don't think, that there needs to be this stabilizing quality, but that, you know, some schools think that you really need to go through a systematic training of the jhanas, these deep levels of absorption. Um, other schools believe that you can really, you know, gain the depth of concentration that's needed for liberating insight through momentary concentration, through connecting with this changing flow of experience. The practice that we emphasize here is really working with that continuity. And that continuity is really essential. I think, you know, we mention it probably almost in every talk, but it's that important. It needs to be remembered. And you know that that continuity comes about not through that straining, that trying, but just that steadiness, that willingness of heart. And this you know, is bringing us back right into right effort. That it's not the, you know, we try, we can't hang on. You know, that's not the kind of concentration we're looking for. But that, that steadiness, and, you know, within that steadiness, there's a gentleness, but it's a firmness. It's not the, you know, it's not a sloppiness, but it's that persevering that courageousness of heart to meet this moment. And you know if we really work with the strengthening of concentration through continuity of mindfulness this is really a practice we can bring into our lives. If we're developing a concentration that needs rarefied conditions, then when we leave the retreat, we let go of our practice. But if we've really been working with the stabilizing of the recognition of awareness, this can go anywhere, can be immediately available in our lives. So, effort, mindfulness, concentration. These are the ways in which we train the mind. It's the way in which we train the mind as the cultivation of the ground for wisdom to dawn it's what helps us to you know step out of this deep entanglement of confusion of the habituated mind by making the effort in this moment to be present awake alert working with the continuity Of mindfulness, of doing this moment by moment by moment with a freshness of heart and mind that allows us to see things as they are. I'd like to close with another teaching from Sayadaw Utejaniya. He said, One thing you need to remember and understand is that you cannot leave the mind alone. It needs to be watched consistently. If you do not look after your garden, it will overgrow with weeds. If you do not watch your mind, defilements will grow and multiply. The mind does not belong to you But you are responsible for it. So let's just sit for a moment. A closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings...